Hello, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elon Levin, and this is a comics podcast. This is a show for comics readers who understand that noir is a political genre and has always been such, and are a little bit bored of having the usual uh, white male protagonists when it comes to historical fiction. That's right. Today we're talking about an amazing new series, The Good Asian. It is about a killer at large in 1936 Chinatown. And joining me today are the writer and the artist of the series. We have Pornsak Pineshot. He is a writer for comics and TV. He wrote the critically acclaimed horror comic hit Infidel that was featured on NPR's Best Horror Stories of All Time. In TV, he's written for the shows Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, Light as a Feather, and Two Sentence Horror Stories. Welcome to the show, Pornsak. Hey, great to be here. Yeah. And joining me is Alexander Tefenki. He is the acclaimed artist of European comics and graphic albums, as well as the critically acclaimed Skybound book Outpost Zero by Sean McKeever. Born in Africa and raised in France, he's an artist of Vietnamese descent. Welcome all the way from France. Hello there. Happy to be there. Yeah. I, um, you know, I really love this series. I, and I knew I would from the second that my friend writer Alex DeCampi described it on Twitter, uh, as the as your, as the promo materials from Image Comics says, this is a meticulously researched new series. It explores race through a genre lens and is hitting shelves right now. Um, and I was just absolutely propelled from issue to issue to issue. I read I have secret review copies of the first three issues, and I really could not point it down. So put it down. So great work, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Pornsak, tell me, uh, how did you initially get the concept for this comic? It's funny. Uh, my, I self-identify as Thai American, um, but I have, but I'm ethically Chinese on my father's side, and uh, and the reason why is that whenever my parents used to argue, my uh, whenever my parents used to argue about politics, whenever my dad was losing, he would always end the argument with being being like, ah, that's a problem with Thai people and blah, 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 blah. And my mom would always get like super annoyed <laughs> and be kind of like, it's like, you're Thai. And he'd be like, I'm Chinese. And she'd be like, you don't speak Chinese. You've never been to China. Like, stop giving me all, all that. And so like, and as a result, like she would always win the argument. And so we would always self-identify as Thai. But my father in his later years would get more obsessed with his Chinese roots. And so anytime I went home, he was always watching a documentary about China and all that. And so when he passed, um, part of processing the loss was learning more about the stuff that my father was so interested in and learning more about China. And the, the interesting thing to me is that instead of focusing on Chinese history or Chinese mythology, probably because of my interest in American history and Americana, I focused on Chinese American history. And that's when I learned about the Chinese Exclusion Act. It's when I learned about the Immigration Act of 1924 that banned all the Asians and Arabs coming into the country. And I was really shocked and amazed. I was, as an Asian American, I wasn't aware of any of that. And, and it also kind of tapped into this interest, curiosity I had when I was younger, how I always found myself drawn to those old you know, Charlie Chan and Mr. Moto movies. In the 1930s, there was this whole uh, period where sort of Asian crime solvers were extremely popular, mostly because of the popularity of Charlie Chan, which had movies spanning the globe and, you know, over 50 movies and all that. And so the idea that, you know, these characters existed and were popular as they were at the same time that uh, Asian immigrants weren't allowed to the country, I found fascinating. And that's kind of where the start of the idea to, to do the book came from. 
That's really, that's really wild. I, you know, I, I feel like when we were taught about the Chinese Exclusion Act in school, they never really like gave us space to think about yeah. how horrific that was. It's sort of taught like, here's a thing that happened in the history of American development without actually talking about this is how it contributed to like yeah. white supremacy in America and the lasting effects of this. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny, I think, you know, we're at this moment in sort of history now where we're kind of looking at sort of the world and society and certainly history from a different sort of racial lens and, and, and sort of a, a different sense of empathy for all that, because it's true, like, you look at so many of the laws that were passed, you know, with with not even within the 19th century, but even the earliest 20th century. And, and, and I, like you say, they are sort of footnotes without sort of unpacking sort of the emotional resonance uh, or, or, or what that does to a sense of community or a sense of, sense of identity. And that's certainly where, you know, the impetus for the book came from is sort of apply sort of the racial lens of today and looking at, at the past to sort of bring out those details just a little bit more. Um, I, I also think about like the way American culture really wanted to see these stories about fictionalized, you know, Chinese cops who were not actual real or like based on okay. real people or reflective of actual Chinese culture. So it's like this fictional idea of what a Chinese cop is and then completely hostile to the reality of that. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, you know, like partly because it's exoticized. I mean, especially if you look at Charlie Chan, like, you know, that um, you know, the character was played by a Swedish actor for sort of most of its run. And I think the very first Charlie Chan actually was sort of a Chinese actor and that just didn't take. So it was this fascinating sort of, the, the, the whole interest around the character was part of a very specific exotification of sort of what an Asian was and sort of what an Asian man and Asian detective sort of could be. Like, it's fascinating to me that, you know, uh, especially in the later movies, Charlie Chan was played you know, by a white man, but his sons were played by Asians. And so it was interesting that, uh, and, you know, his sons were like teenage sons or, and sometimes sort of grown sons. So it was interesting sort of how that worked in terms of what the audience of the time, you know, could imagine and couldn't imagine. It's, you know, you, you see it in some comics as well, like where you'll see one character that'll be drawn as a complete racist caricature mm -hmm. And then other characters of the same exact racial background who are drawn like real people. Like, actually, you see this a lot in the um, Agent Jimmy Woo uh, appearances mm -hmm. in Marvel Comics and Timely and then Marvel Comics, where he's like this, you know, handsome and like totally just looks like a Chinese-American detective uh, character. And then he's fighting against these bad guys who are like the worst yellow peril yeah caricatures you could possibly imagine it's funny and i you know it's, it's i'm glad you brought that up because it's something i've never looked into in terms of the character like so much of charlie chan was brought up in response to sort of fu manchu and i actually don't know where jimmy woo and sort of you know i don't actually don't know if he was fighting the yellow claw at the time or what what mm -hmm. it was but like you know i i don't know where that fits in the timeline of sort of you know using comics as propaganda in kind of that way but that is sort of really interesting i i'm, I'm a i'm I, Partly it's Randall Park, but also partly like I'm fascinated by the character Jimmy Woo. I think he's like one of the best sort of like Asian characters in sort of comics, even though he's so underused. Um, and I think it's primarily because he's one of the few Asian characters who is not a legacy character. And yet, at, and, but at the same time, is also not built on sort of like a, an orientalized, exotified stereotype. So I, yeah, yeah, the character's yeah. amazing. 
I mean, so many characters are like, they have secret Asian spiritual powers or Kung Fu powers. And he's just like, no, just a secret yeah. agent, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, he's absolutely amazing. It's, it's yeah, that character is sort of absolutely amazing for the, for that way. I don't know him as I don't know his his. I haven't read all his sort of appearances as as. I as mean, well as who I who possibly has? Especially <laughs> because like so many of them are so racist. Other than him, right. I mean, part of me makes me think about it in the context of being the good Asian. Yeah. He's he gets to be the good Asian who's like handsome and debonair because he's serving the U.S. government and. The Asian characters who aren't serving the U.S. government, those are the bad Asians, and they get yeah. drawn as, like, subhuman. Yeah, and I, I'm really glad you sort of bring that up because it, it, it does that is so much part of sort of the DNA of the genesis of, of, of the book, of the sense of, you know, I mean, the, the title of The Good Asian sort of certainly refers to the model minority myth that sort of Asians sort of mm-hmm. st- 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 work under. Um, but there's also this a part of that, too, is this concept of, okay, you know, you have to do for 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 any immigrant group. The there is this belief that, all right, if you do the right thing, you get to be an American. And then the question yeah. becomes, well, what is the right thing? And so, and and you you know you see it in those sort of Jimmy Woo comments that you mentioned, and you see it sort of in in the history of sort of pop culture and how they how they represent sort of the other. It where you know the right thing is sort of you know the American way and the law of the land, but. But going back to looking at it through our contemporary racial lens, it's like, well, what happens when the law of the land doesn't necessarily line up to 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 people to innocent people who are just striving to sort of make to make their way and people who are part of your community and people you self-identify with? And that's really, you know, the good Asian kind of takes those ideas and sort of like like in all genre fiction heightens that up into sort of life and death sort of stakes. But hopefully it's something that you know, anybody can kind of relate to in terms of, you know, whether it be pigeonholing or st- stereotyping or, or or just how you sort of see your place in, in a community and society. Well, I love how this is just really heightens all of the ways that you are forced uh, or people of marginalized identities, and in this case, specifically Chinese American, are basically pitted against like being true to your community, being true to yourself and like following the the law in ways that are oppressive to other people and that you have you only have certain freedoms and certain privileges like you know he's able to get out of angel island more quickly like because you are doing what the state tells you to do um and if you are doing if you're living up to other values like protecting people from your community then those that that, then those that access is revoked yeah it's you know it, it it i think a lot about and certainly one of the ideas that sort of deeply resonated with me and sort of um, is part of the, the thought process behind the book is, you know, uh, Hassan Minaj in his uh, one hour special Homecoming King says there's something really powerful about, you know, uh, after 9-11, um, his, his I think his his home was vandalized or, or you know, someone threw bottles at, at his place or something like that. And he saw sort of his dad sort of after they were done, his dad sort of was just like cleaning up afterwards and um, and. And Hassan was just like, we should call the cops. And and he was just like, no, 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 we're just like, let's just clean it up and just like, kind of move on. And Hassan kind of brings up this idea that for Amer- for people who immigrate to America, there is the idea, or if, and certainly for his parents' generation, there is the idea of the, the American dream tax. 
that part of coming to America, part of states of starting over is this idea that maybe you don't get the same protections that everybody else does. And that's just sort of you have to live with. But for their children who you know are second generation, who are Americans, they are born with the audacity of equality. And they are born with this belief that no, that they, they shouldn't have to give up any of that sort of stuff. And so there between the generations and even within the community, there is this there is constantly this conflict of, you know, do you have to pay the American dream tax or do you have the audacity of equality? And I think part of, you know, what is certainly one of the guiding logics as I'm writing the book, it's seeped into my DNA and kind of embodied into this book is sort of that idea of just like, you know, looking at America at a time which isn't that, you know, which isn't as, 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 as far away in some ways Uh to sort of where we are now about, you know, to what degree do, do Chinese Americans, Asian Americans, immigrant Americans have to pay an American dream tax? And to what degree do they, can they own an, uh, the audacity of equality? One of the things that's really cool about this story is that you have Edison coming from Hawaii where he's existed in a very different, and we don't really get to see it in this book. And I would love to perhaps maybe in a future series mm-hmm. get to see Edison in Hawaii because I'm fascinated by Hawaii, where he's coming from a very different uh, culture, um, which I feel like a lot of people who live on the mainland uh, don't understand how like Hawaii yeah. is not just <laughs> another yeah. state that happens to be warm. It's not like it's not just like Florida of like the Pacific um, <laughs> where like he has he has his, a, a specific Chinatown. Uh, he's a police officer and that's not and he's not like the only police officer who's who's Chinese American there. Um, and uh that that particular perspective of what's normal to him isn't identical to what everybody else is experiencing in San Francisco and San Francisco's Chinatown. Yeah, well, first you you might see it sooner than you think. Is all is all I say about that. Uh, Harkin in Harkin, Hawaii, and 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 the other thing that's sort of interesting in Hawaii at that time is a very was a very interesting place because by 1936 it was definitely more open minded than. It than than mainland America was, but um, but but only by a in, in but only by a few years. So like um, you know, in 1932, one of the big things that happened in Hawaii was sort of the Maisie was the Maisie trial, and the um, I actually forget her her first name, but that trial was if if you look at Hawaii in the 1930s. Any research you do will sort of bring you back to to the Maisie trial that happened in 1932, and what happened at that time was and at the time described as American woman, but by now I think would be described as American girl, a 19 year old had gotten into a fight with her husband, had on a walk home, she came back and she walked home alone. The next time anyone saw her, she was sort of battered, she was battered and bruised. And she claimed that nine sort of local men, all men of color had sort of had attacked and raped her. Um, But investigations at the time, police investigations showed no signs of that. And not only that, during questioning, all of her all of her um, none, all of her answers started to contradict itself, but it was a pro- but the bigger problem or there were many problems but but hmm. one of the, th- the things that sort of happened was this this case got nationwide coverage, and so the news coming to the mainland from Hawaii was that locals were attacking and, and raping sort of the white women that were in, in Hawaii, and so the mainland America was kind of calling you know was calling for you know for for these nine guys to kind of go to, to, you know, to be given the, given the death sentence. And what happened was there wasn't enough evidence to, 
to prosecute. And so they they were they were set free. There was nationwide outrage for that. This woman, this girl's mother flew to Hawaii, consoled her daughter and then went out and, and shot one of the men, one of the attackers and killed him. Um, and then that became sort of a new trial. And then that trial mm-hmm. was sort of said that like this woman, this white woman was trying to protect her daughter. And now she is the one sort of being put in jail. And so she was so she was put in a um, I, I want to say she was put in a hotel because she, because she was a, a, a woman of influence. Uh, she actually had a very nice day. So she didn't actually have to stay in a prison, whereas the men who uh, who were cleared for the charges of cleared for the charges of attacking the woman actually had to be put in jail for their own protection from people trying to like hurt them. Right. To lynch them. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so then, so those men ended up sort of back in jail. That woman, the Mm -hmm. mother would eventually, eventually be found guilty of the crime of murdering uh, the the man, but her, but her sentence was one hour in the judge's chambers. And then after that, she was allowed to go free. And so, yeah. And so this, and that was an enormous nationwide case that sort of, you know, that that really kind of put Hawaii in sort of uh, uh, America's sort of lens, and it changed sort of the way. And that was kind of Hawaii's big racial reckoning, of uh, of you know how they you know how they saw people of color and how they saw sort of whiteness and sort of at the time. So by 1936, you had a Hawaii that was starting to change. It was more progressive than the mainland, but it was still kind of right off the heels of sort of this enormous sort of you know. Because at the time, like I think the, the the queen or the princess of Hawaii had kind of had to get involved because there was so much sort of outrest about what was what was happening. Um, so so which is to say, which is I'm sorry, that was a long tangent, but uh, which mm, is to that say, was a great tangent. <laughs> <laughs> which is to say that um, Hawaii, in some ways, was open-minded, but but it was just opening the door, opening the door to its to its open-mindedness, um, and and, and it's sort of heart kind of comes from. That is the Hawaii the heart comes from, of a place that, on the one hand, is uh, is better than California. Hawaii is one of the states where you know intermarriage is legal, where he he couldn't have done that in California. So on the one hand, Hawaii is open minded, but it is a place where he has just sort of seen the double standards between you know local Hawaiians and people of color and sort of sort of white people. So it's it's a it's a complicated dance that even Hark is is, is sort of playing with as as he comes to San Francisco and and, and et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and just like the the dynamics of like, you know, there being a, just a much larger Asian community. Yeah. In Hawaii, like the the math is different there. You, yeah. You. Absolutely. Um, um, you know, mm-hmm. so Hark very much was based on the the same inspiration of for Charlie Chan, which is the detective Chang Aperna, who in the early 20th centuries, he was the first Chinese American cop. And even by the time that Hark is a cop. I, he's still one of the first. They're still not, I, I, you know, the, for the book and seems to track with history. They, he's still the only sort of Chinese American sort of on on the force. And even during that time, you know, first of all, Chang Aperna, his life is practically a comic book. Like if I was to like, you know, like his life would be, his life might be like too comic booky. Like you know, hmm. he he um he didn't carry a gun. He carried a bullwhip because he used to be a cowboy. He uh, oh my a, god yeah. He he had a scar in his eye because he got into a fight with a man with a sickle. I don't even know how you like confront men with sickles, but that's what he did. He was you know there are stories about him getting thrown out of windows, landing on his feet, and then running right back into the building to sort of apprehend people, and um. 
and but but the, the the you know what he had to do so much of his work was against sort of the local local Chinese community. Um, the the first thing that he was found useful for being was to go into Chinese gambling and opium dens and be able to. to come back out and tell the police who the troublemakers were and who they need to go to go in and arrest. So it was an efficient arrest. He was at the time leprosy was sort of seen as a, uh, as a Chinese virus. And so he was, he would task, he was tasked and he would round up Chinese lepers and send them off to Molokai. So definitely, you know, gets a lot of his um, influence. And, and I borrow a lot of that for sort of, Hark's backstory as well, but it but it is you know he was someone who was used to sort of police his own. Yeah, I mean, I I for any listeners, you know, fellow leftists who are like, oh my god, why do we always have to have our like representation characters be in the form of police officers? Like this comic is completely critical of that paradigm. Like this is not about like look at this good Asian who's a cop. This is like you're 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 critiquing the fact that this is the space that he has to inhabit and the ways that he's rewarded for you know the equivalent of you know going in and like narking on people basically i can't speak you know my research didn't go into sort of contemporary issues but you know it's certainly you know the lo- the news and current events definitely inform sort of the work so uh, you know i can't sort of say you know how much of this experience is analogous to you know police of co- police of co- law enforcement of color sort of right now, but mm-hmm. I, I you know I'd be lying if I didn't think that 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 you can tr- you know you can certainly trace the thread between sort of the stuff that Edison Hark is going through into to to things that are happening in 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 our in our modern day times. And I really do want to encourage listeners who are like I don't like. I mean, okay, I don't know. If somebody isn't into noir, they might not be into this. But everybody's <laughs> into noir, damn it. But I think if you're someone who's, like, really tired of having things be, like, where the police are, you know, it's just a few bad apples or, like, you know, this is all about just giving mar- marginalized people access to being agents of the law. Like, this is a story that critiques that. Like, this is not, you know. And and, and the character himself is wrestling with that himself, Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, uh, there is, I would not be able to write a book, uh, write this book without, you know, having to do sort of a long look in the mirror about like, you know, just, you know, being very aware of this current state of propaganda and sort of, you know, in both its good forms and its and its bad forms and sort of, you know, those were definitely questions, you know, that, that were very that that were very paramount in sort of you know I think my very first pitch in my very first sentence to Eric about pitch of this book was this was a book about you know this was this was a book about many things it was about Asian American identity it was you know it was about immigration bans but it's also very much about police brutality and 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 sort of you know this is coming from a time you know the, the book takes place in the 1930s and so it's a time before. Uh, Miranda writes. And so mm. it, it is meant to sort of look at all of that. What are what are some of your favorite noirs? I in have, film or comics? I have so many. Um, <laughs> I uh my favorite Chandler novel is uh probably Farewell My Lovely. Mm. Um mm-hmm. I love that book. Um I'm trying to think. I love Red Harvest. Uh yes. uh the you know the continental That's so in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's uh, so I love that. I mean, obviously, you know, the other continental op story, Dead Yellow, Dead Yellow Women, is is a big uh, 
is a is a, is a big influence on this because that you know that takes place in Chinatown. Um, what else? Um, let me see. I mean, Easy Rollins, you know, Devil with a Blue Dress, that definitely has an influence. Lou Archer Mysteries, you know, that has sort of a big influence. Um, there's uh, the author Leonard Chang wrote sort of uh, uh, has his Alan Choice trilogy, which is also about an Asian American detective, although that is sort of in a more contemporary setting. Uh, his first that first book is Over the Shoulder. So those are sort of the novels that this riffs off of, you know, in terms of like the comics. I mean, like, God, all of them, like, you know, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, uh, the the Ed Brubaker's yeah. early work especially has a a um a very big sort of influence on how the book is written. The Ed's uh for, for the comic geeks listening, like the Ed, you know, if you remember Ed's early work, he was doing a lot in sort of four-tiered pages. And I loved how the rhythm that kind of gave your read. You know, most contemporary comics are in three tiers, but those are in four tiers. And it just gave it a little bit of rhythm, a little different rhythm. It felt a little antiquated, which was exactly right for what um, for what Ed was going with in, in sort of that early stuff. And so I definitely sort of stole that from him just to kind of give the, the book a little bit more of a, you know, of an antiquated rhythm that still didn't kind of, you know, jump out at you and that, that didn't hopefully draw too much attention to itself. Um, I mean, uh, Darwin Cook's Parker books, uh, Matt Wagner, Guy Davis' Sam and Mystery Theater, which was also set in the 1930s, Brian Azzarello's, uh, and Edward Roderiso's Hundred Bullets, uh, all of Bendis' crime stuff, Jason Aaron's crime stuff, Scalped and Southern Bastards, Frank Miller's Sin City, Frank Miller's Daredevil, like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, now you're just giving me excuses, let's just, like, list my favorite comics and books. Yeah, and just no, but I, I mean, I see these... <laughs> You know, when you mentioned, though, um, with the uh, Dashiell Hammett work, and I'm yeah. a big fan of his work, too, uh, uh, with, like, Dead Yellow Girls, it makes me think about how in your work, like, because uh, you're being, you know, true to this time period, uh, you know, there's a lot of, like, people using language that hmm. we wouldn't use because it's racist, and how, you know, I, it's always a challenge, yes. I think, for us to sort of navigate, like, when do we want to use racist language that is reflective of how these characters would actually talk in the space they live in versus just, like, how much it sucks to have to write those words? Right. Like, how do you, you know, like, I, I mean, I, I'm i not Asian American, so I can't speak to the way it works in that particular text, but I certainly read plenty of things that use language to describe my identities that I don't love. And sometimes I'm like, this is okay in this ways, and other times I'm like, shut, stop, go away. Like, how do you navigate that yourself when you're telling historical fiction or reading work like Dashiell Hammett's? Well, I mean, when you're reading work like that, you know, there's a little bit of that where it's a little bit of the cost of entry where, you know, you're, Mm. you know, that's part of the contract that you realize, you know, and it's certainly easier with novels than it is sort of with old films or, you know, old, old TV shows and, and, and all that in terms of how I handle it in my own work. Um, I think being part of that group makes it a little easier. I, I will find I will give myself a little bit more leniency of doing that with my own work than or with my with people that I self-identify as my own ethnicity than I would someone else's ethnicity. So like, you know, um, you know, certain some of the language, the the the, the extent we go to a language in the good Asian talking about Chinese American characters, I don't know if 
I don't know if I would put myself in a position where I would have to make that decision if it was sort of, say, for black characters or for Latino characters or, or, or anything like that. Um, I felt a little bit more comfortable uh, with that with Asian characters just because I'm a little bit more aware of the conversation around the, the, the words and the, and the language. So I feel a little bit more informed to make those decisions. And so, so you know, the, the harshest slurs come from the the racist the racist characters um mm -hmm. or or the the least open-minded least empathetic characters sort of in the book and it is sort of meant to reflect the times it is you know i to to, to i'm not going to use the word censor but to uh, to omit the language uh for lack of a better term whitewashes the times uh you know and and, and lets the the era off the hook more than i'm willing to uh at the same time though you know there's other language decisions where are historical or are, are, are historically based you know the fact that to asians white people weren't called white they were called american and because that's what it was that's how they were seen mm -hmm. at the time you know there was no such thing as asian at the time at the closest thing you would get it was academics would refer to asian people as asiatic you know if you were chinese yeah. you were considered oriental so there are aspects of that part of the language that to me is more historical is is informed sort of by history but even the slurs in my opinion is informed by history and it is just about trying to provide the most accurate and i think that i think is the thing too um you know my approach to, to slurs and language is that it's less about you know the whether it's the emotional impact or, or it, it's not meant to shock or surprise you or that it is meant to be uh, anthropological in a certain sense. It is meant to just depict right. the times as, as from what I could tell how they ex actually existed. Another thing I think like I've only really started to see coming up more in the discourse, so to speak, is the ways that, you know, like it's only in America that there is a specifically like Asian American identity mm -hmm. and that that actually encapsulates people from all over the freaking yeah. world who like have radically different experiences and don't necessarily see each other as having a ton to do with it, except for like the way white people categorize right. them. Yeah. And that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's definitely something that is at the heart of the book as well. I mean, w one of the things, one of the places where I came from when writing the book and you see parts of it in Hark itself is that, exactly what you say you know asian american incorporates many different groups you look at something like latinos latin americans latinos mm -hmm. they incorporate many different uh, many different countries many different cultures um but at the very least they're connected by language asian americans don't even even have that so when you say someone yeah. is an asian american and as a writer if i'm trying to say I'm, i want to write about asian american themes well like what exactly am i talking about what exactly i mean what actually connects all those very different groups um, and the good Asian for me anyway, is me trying to answer that question for myself. And in that way, Hark is kind of a vessel for that as he, as sort of an outsider, it, you know, he is a Chinese American who we learn in the first issue was adopted by sort of a, a rich white family because his mother, his mother, who was their housekeeper died there. Um, he's an Asian of privilege from there. He went to be a cop. Um, which had, which is another form of privilege, and so as a result, he's hmm. not as in touch with his own Chinese roots, his own his own Chinese American community, as perhaps he would be if those things didn't happen. And so he, as he, especially as he comes into San Francisco, Chinatown, which he's never been to before, he's very much trying to figure out. It's like, all right, where do I stand? 
what is my place sort of within this community? But I think to me, I think, you know, I resonate to that and hopefully other people resonate to that as sort of like as an Asian American, I, as, as I try to figure out, okay, where do I resonate with the larger Asian American community? Where do I resonate within, you know, I, again, I, I self-identify as Thai American. There's not a ton of us here in America. So, so, so there's first, it's like, okay, how do I, how do I, you, you know, how do I see myself amongst other Thai Americans? But then, you know, I'm also sort of Chinese. So how do I see myself amongst Chinese Americans? And how do I see myself amongst Asian Americans? And it, I think part of sort of what you say, because Asian Americans for, you know, is really a political classification to, that lumping all these different sort of groups together. Um, you know, what, what aspects of the experiences speak to, to one another, you know, is certainly a question that I have and is a question that's kind of in the DNA of the book. Yeah, no, I, I, I really love that. Um, you know, and like, just was really thinking about the significance of the, of the, co- of the comic being called the good Asian and not like the good Chinese American. Right. And, um, but it's so beautifully situated specifically in the Chinatown, specifically of, of San Francisco, you know, and I really feel like you get immersed in, in that space, which is, you know, I live right next door to one of New York's Chinatowns yeah. and it's completely different, you know, like yeah. you play, people are from a different part of China and people yeah. are, you know, you have people who just came here versus people who've been here since long before my family ever came here. And, you know, it's a whole range. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, a, it's an amazing, it's funny. I, cause I, you know, the Chinatown that I'm most comfortable with and the Chinatown I know the best is, um, is New York's as well. So getting the chance to visit. Oh, you mean visit... Manhattan or? Um... Yeah, Manhattan. Yeah, Manhattan. Oh, I mean, I'm next to, Bro- I'm next, I'm next to Brooklyn's, you know? Oh, yeah. I've never even been to Brooklyn's Chinatown. That's crazy. Ooh, Sunset oh. Park all the way. Oh, Come, wow. come on down. I, I'll have to check it out next time. Yeah, no, I, for me, it was Manhattan sort of Chinatown and it, it is mm-hmm. such a different you know, topography and, ge- and geography than, you know, San Francisco's Chinatown, which, it, you know, which just feels so much, I, there is a, I can understand why writers from the 30s and writers, I guess, all throughout history has sort of been swept up in sort of romantic aspects of, of San Francisco's Chinatown, even though, you know, I think that the aspects that they forget that we try to um, acknowledge in the book that, you know, while it is a place that can be romanticized, it's also a place that has, you know, it's a place of, of working class Asian people and sort of, yes. and, and, and try mm-hmm. to, you know, center the story around sort of their experience as well. And I love how you do that with the, with the, uh, oh my God, I'm forgetting her name, but Lucy. the woman who's the telephone. Yes. The yeah. woman who's the telephone operator, like the, the way her whole life is sort of like at the network hub of connecting people to each other. And listening to their stories and, you know, her life as a, as a woman with like a, a, a real job yeah, um, and a working class woman. Yeah, no, I, th- I found, you know, it was really important to me to, to have a story, you know, from the perspectives of someone sort of living in, in Chinatown and also, you know, to see what it was like for, for a woman sort of at, at that time to live in Chinatown. And also I was just fascinated by the, the, the operators at the, chel- uh, at the Chinatown uh, telephone exchange and just the idea that you know, part of their job meant they had to have every address and every phone number in Chinatown memorized and at their fingertips. It just, it felt like they had access to the entire city and, and again, could listen in on, like, it, it just felt they were the heart of Chinatown in some ways. And so, mm. uh, so yes, yeah, so I, it, that, that character, especially, I think the entire team has kind of fallen in love with her and, and her role continues to grow as, 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 as the book, as the book progresses. 
So is the whole is the whole book already written and it's being released in installments? Or are you guys still working on it? Uh, Alex is still drawing it. I mm-hmm. have about like eight pages left to write before I'm done with oh, the wow. whole thing. So yes, yeah, so I've it you know part of not something I would recommend to to writers, but it was it was but but I set the task out for myself. Um, writing a mystery serially is, is not the easiest thing in the world, and so um, <laughs> and so what really helped me was my schedule. The way my schedule worked is I have to work far in advance, and that ended up being the best way to write a serialized mystery because me being far in advance, I can make sure that every, all the different pieces lock together this way a good mystery should. And definitely while writing it, I was just like, yeah, this is why like, you know, most prose writers, what, writers who were writing mysteries at the very least, like did not serialize their, their stories. They had the whole thing done and then released it. I, you know, writing mysteries is really freaking hard. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, like, did this start with a sense of the character or like with what, or with what the mystery was, like, where did, where did it begin in your mind? It it was a little bit, I mean, for me, these things all kind of start simultaneously. So it was absolutely the character. It was absolutely, you know, what I wanted to explore with the character, but it was also about what I wanted to explore with Chinatown and it, you know, and all the different facets of Chinatown. And to me, Hark and Chinatown, there are two sides of the same coin. And so once I kind of knew all the things I wanted the story to explore, then it was finding a mystery that sort of could incorporate all, all that. And, you know, and because it's sort of introducing you to Hark and introducing you to, um, you know, to the Chinatown of 1936, it, it's one of the reasons why the, it, you know, it, it required sort of a, it, it required a big mystery, which fortunately in the tradition of good noir, uh, that mysteries are big and winding and, and, you know, it, one of the things that I love about working with genre to sort of talk about sort of all these different issues is that, you know, you find the kind of superpowers every genre has to the, the natural tricks and tropes that the super that the genre has that you can use to explore certain, uh, that, that are, that almost seem, you know, that almost seem, constructed just so that you can explore certain issues. And so for me, the twisty, turny, serpentine aspect of Norn Mysteries kind of helped, um, you know, this, all these topics I wanted to talk about between Hark and Chinatown. Well, it's really definitely hard to sort of like craft the like, you know, who did what and, and all <laughs> yeah. that. So congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, Thank I, re- you. I really am loving this comic. Thank I you. It's just so my thing. Um, oh, thanks. Like, I, I love historical fiction that's really rooted in spaces that haven't been explored with either as thoroughness or as much honesty or with, like, in the, through the through the lens of, like, impacted people and impacted communities. And I love a mystery and I love noir. So thank you for, for all of this awesomeness. Um, I, you know, I, I, uh, I'm really intrigued by Angel Island. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, being from the East Coast and from, you know, refugee folks who came through the East Coast, I have a very, I, ha- I know a lot more about what was going on with immigrants coming into America here and less about um, Angel Island. And I realized I mentioned it earlier in the podcast without like saying at all what the hell it was, which maybe we should talk a little bit about that for folks who haven't read the comic yet. 
Yeah. Um, but you, know, you, you start your story there. Like you really begin your story with Edison Hark on Angel Island um, talking with a, a young boy. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it, you know, for me, um, I, I didn't know about Angel Island until I sort of started all this research and I sort of went down that path. And again, it was one of those things like, wow, I can't believe I didn't know it. But for, uh, for anyone who doesn't know what Angel Island is, Angel Island was kind of the Ellis Island of the West Coast that if you were traveling across the Pacific, uh, Angel Island was, you know, was the immigration center through which you were processed. The difference being is that especially for up until really, you know, 1943, maybe even sort of beyond that, um, America was very, you know, America was an anti-Asian country. America, you know, didn't welcome Asian immigrants. Um, part of what the book is about is about the Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned, you know, Chinese immigrants, uh, certain categories of Chinese immigrants between 1882 to 1943. But even as of 1924, the Immigration Act of 1924 was passed, and that banned all Asians and Arabs from coming into the country from 1924 until it was, you know, it was ratified in the 1950s and then lifted in 1965. But the important thing about that in terms of Angel Island was it wasn't as welcoming an experience as it was coming through Ellis Island, and which is not to uh, which is not to minimize that. Not for to a say lot of, that was great. Yeah, <laughs> not, to, not to say that was great for people kind of cu- coming in th- through through the East Coast. Um, but uh, but so what would happen, at least for the Chinese at the time in, in 1936, is that they would be interviewed, and uh, in order to prove, because you had to be part of very specific categories to uh, enter. America, they would uh, have these long interviews of, of over 100 questions of the minutia of their life to kind of prove that they were who they said they were. And these pro- these processes would take anywhere from, you know, a couple of days to a couple of years. And people would be, be staying in what, for all intents and purposes, were concentration camps in order to sort of enter America. And, um, and in a weird way, you know, with the advent of Angel Island, that was the process getting better. You know, before then, people were, you know, mm-hmm. before the immigration state, uh, the immigration um, stations at Angel Island was, were created, you know, it, the, the process was a lot more racist, where there were, there were very sort of xenophobic people running, running things. And, you know, it was during a time where uh, Asians were, because they were coming across the Pacific, um, they were seen as coming from a place with more diseases, and so they had to be sort of disinfected before they kind of came mm. into the before they came into the country. And so, so the level of scrutiny coming in from the West and over the Pacific was sort of very intense. People had to specifically Chinese Americans, but also but Asian Americans in general were, um, were, you know, were, there was a lot of scrutiny born on uh, on who could and who couldn't. And the result of that scrutiny meant that a lot of people had to sit in barracks and concentration camps before they were allowed into America. And just the way you show like people being questioned about these specific yeah. details in their lives as if knowing them would determine whether or one was innocent or worthy. Like, yeah. it, it's so arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it, was, and it was crazy, just the level of just how many windows are there in your house? How long, you know, how many steps did it take you? What, what was your local market? How many steps did it take you to get to your local market? It was very much, you know, it was very much the, uh, you know, you, you know, presuming, presumed guilty kind of thing. And you had to kind of prove your innocence to sort of allow yourself into America. And again, even that sort of factors into this concept of the good Asian, that we're only going to allow the good Asians into, into the country. 
Alexander, uh, how did you get connected to this to this project? Uh, I got connected through uh, Cliff Chang. Uh, is a friend of mine, and I met him at the convention, New York convention, and uh, I was talking uh, about um, comics and life, and I told him that I was uh, living in Vietnam at, the, at that moment, and that I was uh, in uh, the process of knowing uh, better my roots, my Asian roots, and uh, th- through uh, that conversation, uh, he talked about... Uh, uh, a project, and a, he put me in contact uh, with Pornsack. Oh, awesome. How did you start making comics art? Uh, comics art, uh, I started in France when I was, I think, 28. Yes, I, I, I published my first book uh, in, a, in a publishing company named Bamboo. It was a, um, my first book was about the World War II, uh, about a, a pilot uh, crashed in, uh, in France and w- was saved uh, fr- uh, by a, a French farmer. And uh, it was a real story. Mm. And uh, after that, I continued publishing in, in uh, Europe. And uh, my first project in the U.S. was Outpost Zero with Sean McKeever, Killing McKeever in, uh, for Skybound. And then uh, then it was Image and uh, Porn Sack uh, with uh, The Good Asian. So what is it th- about doing historical settings and stories that really appeals to you as an artist and creator? I, I think it's uh, comics is, an, is a great medium to entertain and to talk about history, not as a history book, but talking about history and to uh, portray in an interesting way what happened, what interesting stories happened uh, during uh, different uh, eras and different contexts. Are there particular uh, other artists or illustrators who's influenced your particular like look and approach to making comics? Oh, um, yes, uh, but not only in the European comics or the US comics, but I'm also influenced by the the manga comics, by the manga mm. uh, uh, like uh, Naoki Urozawa with the uh, 20th century boys or monsters uh, in the European uh, uh, genre. Uh, uh, you can find uh, in um, Denis Baudard with uh, his um, uh, detective uh, book, uh, uh, I don't remember the name, but it's it's a, it's it's a stylistically and uh, graphically, it's it's really uh, it's, it's great and it inspired me a lot. Uh, Black Sad uh, also yeah. uh, in Europe, uh, and for the US, uh, Alex Toth uh, influenced me a lot. Yeah. Uh, Christopher Bacalou influenced me a lot uh, for uh, in a period. Oh, that's really interesting. Do, do you find yourself cha- like your art style changing as you do art for different taking place in different time periods? I think it changes, yes, but not from day to to night. It, it's it's some tweaks that should. Um, make my art uh, a good fit for for the stories of course and uh, i try to to uh to find the right way the 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 right visual style to to uh portray the 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 project i'm working on uh and uh, for this detective story i uh looked uh, in into uh the noir genre uh into the really uh 
dark style like uh, uh, like Batman or uh, Sin City, uh, and um, and uh, of course, as I told you, Alex Toth. And uh, I think I took some pieces here and there to to and um, made it my my own to to uh, fit this project. Oh, I, and I definitely see those connections. Um. One of the things I really love about the art in this is the character design. Everybody has such a, a evocative look and they feel like such real life people as you draw them and they're each really unique. How do you develop and sort of create the sort of faces and expressions and visual, uh, visual like keys for unlocking the different characters that you are showing in the story? Yeah. For uh, the, the main character, uh, Hark, here in, in our story, we talked a lot with Pornsack uh, and Will Dennis uh, uh, about what we wanted for uh, as, a, as a visual, for, uh, as an impactful character. And uh, we didn't want uh, a character that would be impactful as a, as a Bruce Lee type of way. We wanted someone that would be... Uh, that would you you would sense the, the the brute force and some someone that should that that would impose something. Uh, so uh, if I would uh, go to to uh, um, a character uh, a fighting character, I, I would uh, maybe I would go to the MMA style like uh, uh, Asian uh, MMA fighters to to to. Hmm. Uh, to take the the essence of what we wanted. That's really interesting. Yeah, the the fight, the physical fights. Um, it's like you're really switching between genres in how you're and how you de- depict them, depending on the circumstances. Um, like you know, you have uh, some difference in in the way the different fight scenes are are drawn. Yes, uh, I try to. Um take the, the, the different sequences in, uh, in uh, the, the book as a different part of uh, action. Uh, I, when Hark uh, is uh, in, in the detective uh, mode, uh, I, I think I take more of uh, maybe me. I'm acting the, the character. I'm trying to to imagine, to 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 uh, uh, move in my house, to take pictures, and to uh, try to put myself in his shoes. But when uh, it's a, a fight scene, of course, uh, uh, it would be for, maybe difficult for me to to put myself in his shoes. So I'm I'm trying to to uh, watch fight uh, videos, like uh, anime-style video uh, about uh, fights. Uh, yeah, that kind, of, uh, that kind of documentation. It's really neat and effective. Uh, and you hit on sort of one of the really iconic uh, visual notes of the story, which is the sort of hawk eye, where you can see Edison Hark's focus on highlighted in like different squares and different moments and what he observes as a, as an observational detective and as an artist. How did you develop that? Ah, we developed that with a uh, porn sack and, and will, we wanted something that would directly uh, focus the, 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 the uh, reader's eye on to the, the main, uh, the main uh, subject and something that, that, that would be uh, simple enough 
for uh, not for the the, uh, the reader to be out of the narrative. So yes, the the, um, the red square was a, a good uh, option for for us. That really worked, and like I think is sort of the thing I'll always associate, you know, with this nest, <laughs> with this wherever you're you're going with the story. I mean, one of the big parallels that is drawn is between Edison as an artist and Edison as a detective. Is is that a metaphor that um, that you connect with as an artist as well, or is this sort of like this is how Edison's brain works? Uh, how I took this part of arc is maybe uh, his emotional side that comes out through the, the drawings because he's a kind of a cynical guy. Uh, he's jaded uh, about uh, the, his environment and how uh, Asians are treated and how his life is. So this part of the, um, his character is, I think, the, the uh, uh, let out uh, of uh, his emotion about uh, the the world as a uh, maybe more innocent as he shows uh, usually. Hmm. I like that. Yeah, I mean, the story really opens with him connecting with a young boy on Angel Island, you know, through art and through observation. And it set it set a tone for the story, but also I think you know really sort of revealed a more vulnerable. Um, a more vulnerable appearance or approach to interacting with other people than than we get from Edison in other in other spaces. Yes, I think it's important. It, it, it shows uh, that Ark is uh, not a one facet person, and uh, um, of course he has this detective mind, this cynical uh, behavior, uh, and uh, but. He has also the, the, uh, his other side and uh, uh, those uh, relationship with the drawing and, and the, the kid at the beginning is maybe uh, the, the uh, uh, echo uh, of his childhood. Mm. Yeah, I can totally see that. Do you feel like in a different world, he would have maybe been able to just be an artist? Maybe in, different, in a different era. Yes, maybe. Yeah. Well... You know, really, this this comic is really so beautiful. And, you know, I'm someone who loves noir as a genre. And I felt like you did an amazing job of taking the visuals and making it your own and also making it, like, just really work in in Chinatown as a, as a setting and place. Did you use a lot of reference images to create it or? I'm a looker guy, you know. Borsak uh, <laughs> did all the, ground, the groundwork for that. I... I each time I'm, I'm uh, starting an, an issue, I get a, a folder with most of the, the documentation about uh, the era and uh, the, the architecture, the, the, the fashion. And uh, I have to, to, to uh, put uh, extra uh, documentation on my own here and there, but the, most of the work has already been done. And uh, it's uh, make my life really uh, uh, easier. That's really good, though. You guys are such a cool partnership. And um, it's like a, a comic with, like, you can see really, like, people working together and not just a game of telephone, like sometimes it is. Although you guys are both working very far apart, like, on opposite sides of the world almost. Yeah, but we're, we're trying to, to uh, keep in touch uh, 
often and we uh outside of work we uh video chat on weekends uh with Pornsack just to about life and uh and uh everything and nothing and uh, we uh, developed a friendship and uh, it's 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 awesome yeah yeah i um it's such a cool it's such a cool team up of people with skills here as well are are there any characters that um really as the, as the artists have sort of surprised you with this, some of the direction you've ended up taking them in visually? I think I'm surprised from time to time because uh, a character is not something uh, uh, set in stone. It's it's growing organi- organically. Uh, uh, we started with ARC in issue one, and I think uh, I'm on uh, uh, the end of issue five now, and it grew in a, in a way that I was expecting and not expecting at the same time because uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's an imagination. It's a character from imagination and uh, mm-hmm. everything grows in your imagination and it uh, tra- translates into uh, the, the paper, into the comics. You definitely have some really imaginative, like visual splash, like splash pages for the scene at the club, for example. Um, that's definitely about evoking a sort of feeling of overwhelmingness and like, all these layers and excitement that really breaks up um, really interesting paneling and, and, and detail work throughout the rest of the comic as well. But it's, it's cool to have that mix. Yeah. You, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to put my love for storyboarding too, for a uh, movie storyboarding too, in, in, in the comics uh, for this scene, uh, for example, uh, I was uh, watching Peaky Blinders at the time. And there's a scene uh, in Peaky Blinders, uh, where they entered um, a club and when they fight inside the club. And I, I, I thought it was a really impactful. And I think it, it, I tried to capture this atmosphere and to, to uh, build from that uh, uh, this page and to create an atmosphere that, 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 would, uh, that would fit the, 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 the moment. I, I haven't seen Peaky Blinders, but that's a really cool connection. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I um, I really enjoyed having this conversation and uh, really excited to to keep reading the series and excited to see Edison Hark in Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for your interest, your love of the book, and, and yeah, and for the time. Like, this was a really fun interview. It, it's really it's clear that you care about the issues and, and the, 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 the genre and the topic matter. And, and yeah, and, you can, and I, I had a lot of fun. This is great. Oh, uh, so um, do you have anything coming out after this that you know of? And please, it's totally fine if you don't. I just am giving you the opportunity <laughs> to plug I, it. I appreciate that. Uh, my main project right now is The Good Asian coming out sort of every month. I have a short story in uh, DC Celebration of Heroes that's coming out sort of the week after as part of this DC anthology where I'm writing a, a Ryan Choi short story. But right now, most of my the, – the stuff I can talk about is um, – is the good age is a good Asian right now. Awesome. Um, and folks can pick that up. It's from image comics. It's everywhere. Comics are sold. Please support the book. And where can our listeners keep up with your work online? Oh yeah. Uh, you can find me, uh, real underscore porn sack on Twitter and real underscore PSAC, uh, on Instagram, the Alice's Twitter and his Instagram is just his last name to thank T E F E N K G I. Uh, because I have a feeling I have written that, I've typed that out way more often than he has at this point. Thank you for having us. Thank sure, you for having sure. Um, well, thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, I know this spring has been 
a slower releasing of episodes than I would have liked, but uh, there've been a number of crazy things happening in the real world. There's a lot more great contact content coming up, including more interviews with comics writers. And I uh, appreciate you bearing with the show and being patient. Uh, remember, this is something I do on top of all of my work and all my activism. Um, so uh, you can follow me on Twitter, where I am a little bit too much, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. And don't forget to keep an eye on uh, Graphic Policy's website, graphicpolicy.com. And uh, that's the place to go for your comics news and reviews. And as we like to say, keep it geeky. <laughs>